We're going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And then I'll open in prayer after that. Looking at the call of Peter. Last week we looked at the disciples' call of Matthew. This week we looked at the disciples' call of Peter. And there's, I don't have any three-point sermon laid out for you. No little fancy alliteration or anything like that. Um, as I was doing this, God just burned my heart to share something with you. And, and, and let's look in the scriptures together this morning and allow the Spirit of God to minister to our hearts. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the calling you have placed on our lives. Thank you for delivering us from darkness and into your marvelous light through your son, Jesus Christ. And as we look at your word this morning, I pray that by your spirit, you will give us attentive hearts. You will grant us open ears. You will give us just a, a, an attitude of, of eagerness to hear from you today. Father, I really pray for your connection with us. That whether we're at home, sick, in bed, whether we're here within the church building, that you might speak to each of us and reveal to us the greatness of who you are. Father, please help me today to share your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in Luke chapter 4, we have some interesting things, just to provide a little bit of context. To Jesus, we are told in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, is that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness when he is tempted of the devil. So after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, the devil tempts him three times, which he overcomes using the Word of God. We are told later on that when he returns from that, so he was led by the Spirit, when he comes back in that same chapter, we read that he returns full of the Spirit or full of the power of the Spirit. And because he's full of power of the Spirit, he stands out. Because he's full of power of the Spirit, and he, he, he is different from everybody else. And he stands out because we begin this chapter with him being surrounded by a crowd of people listening to the Word of God. That's what we're told there at the beginning of this chapter. Much like John the Baptist, as we talked about on Mother's Day, Jesus is a proclaimer of a message that spoke to the heart of the people. 
not to the conduct of the people, but spoke to the heart of the people. He wasn't just about spitting facts. He wasn't just about giving information. He wasn't just about being a teacher of knowledge that has no real impact in life. And you know people like this. You may even know this yourself when there are people who spit knowledge, but it doesn't do anything to change or have an inward transformation within your heart. Rather, when Jesus taught, he taught in a manner that personalized God, that, that brought God down, not, not lessened him, but made him relatable. You, you see this. I remember, I remember Yusuf talking about the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5 through to chapter 7, and he said that's what it was. It was about demystifying God. It was about making God real to the people, not just having the facts about God, but knowing who God is. And you see this all throughout the Gospels. You see the way God interacts with Joseph in, in Matthew chapter 1. You see how Jesus interacts with the leper in Matthew chapter 8, you see how he deals with the outcast of society, with the woman at the well in, in John chapter 4, or even if it's just a bunch of curious kids in Matthew 19, you see the heart of God for people, for you. Not about your conduct, not about your activity, not about your programs, but about you and, and your heart and where you're at and, and how you stand before him. And, and you see when this interaction takes place, how this heart is manifest is, is communicated by the response of the people. For example, at the end of Matthew chapter 7, after he teaches the Sermon on the Mount, this is what the people said in Matthew Chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. This is what the people said. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. There was something different about what he taught. What did he read from? Did he read from something different? Did he share from a different passage of scriptures? No. He taught as one who had authority. And you've seen these people. You've seen people when you talk to them and you see that they know God more intimately than just in pages of a book. You talk with the missionaries that we've had come here. You, you, I mean, you've talked, we've had missionaries leave from this church and come back and you see the reality of God in their lives because it isn't just about communicating information. It's about sharing the reality of a person. And that's what Jesus does. In, in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, and in Luke chapter 4, verse 36, it's the same situation, but these words are said. All the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. What words these are? Luke 24, the two on the road to Emmaus, did, our not, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? Because it's more than just information that he's trying to communicate. He's trying to share with them the reality. So, so it's no wonder people were drawn to him. That when Jesus taught, he taught in such a way that people were just like, I need to hear more. I, I want to know more. And he was the one who had the answers. Not only because he was a miracle worker. I mean, he fed 5,000 people with some bread and fish. He raised the dead. He made the lame walk. Not only because he could heal with a touch or even just with but a word. Not only because he could provide for the masses in, in major ways. They were drawn to him because of the truth that he taught. Not of, about someone, but because he knew someone. What does it say in John 1? That when you see that he is the one who declares the Father. You see Jesus Christ, you see God in the flesh. 
that's what you see. They were drawn to that. I mean, if you look at those realities in Matthew chapter 5, you know, the, the, the blessedness of, of who they are in the Beatitudes, uh, the, the blessedness of who they are in being salt and light. You have him being the fulfillment of God's law. You, you have him talk about the, the, standard, the standard of how grace far exceeds the requirements of the law. As you read those, you know, he talks about, you know, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say that if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He shares about that standard, how it's a higher standard. It's a relational standard. He talks about the wise and foolish builders and the foundation that they build upon, whether it be rock or sand. In other words, what Jesus does is he lives out and he contextualizes the reality of who God really is. And it's different from, from the image that the traditional, the institutionalized image that's been pre- created or promoted by the religious leaders and the religious ritual of the day. Jesus revealed to them within the scriptures, Jesus has revealed himself to us that he is a personal, knowable, relatable God and how that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and here's the first challenge that's laid out before us then. That as Jesus adorned himself in human flesh to show us who God is and what God is about and the heart of God is for people, that how God sent Jesus to contextualize who God is in the real world, so too has he sent you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, being born again of the Spirit, So he has sent you as a child, as a son, or as a daughter of the Most High God who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So he has sent you to your jobs, to your families, to your communities, to your neighborhoods. So he has sent you to contextualize the reality of God's love to the people that you interact with. So that the people will know who Jesus is. So that the people know who, what Jesus is about because he has sent you to represent him. I, I, I shared this. I shared this last week with our leaders. Okay, That the church, meaning the people, not the building. The church, being the people, are the windows through which the world will see the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the understanding of Jesus, the acceptance of Jesus, the hope that Jesus brings. The people, you, you are the windows through which the world will see who God is and how God feels about them. So on this bottom floor, we basically have one window that leads to the outside and we have one door that leads to the outside. Correct? Okay. So you get people, they, they don't see, they don't see outside of this building. They don't see when we have fun dancing with kids and the joy of fellowship, whether they're young or whether old. They don't see the fellowship and the support and the comfort that takes place in this building from the outside. What they see, they see, they see the front steps. They see the, the morning tea stuff. That's all they see when they look through that window. That's what they see. They don't, see, they don't see the fun that we have. They don't see the friendships that are built. They don't see the connections that are made within these four walls because all they see are the four walls, one window, and one door. 
if the church was just a building, that's all they will see. There will be, and I like, and Moody says this, many people in the world that will never pass through the doors of a church building. There'll be many people in the world that will never darken the door of a church building. But, but, there are, as I look around here, there are innumerable doors that you can go to through which the world will see who Jesus is. Whether it's Jono's work in the city, whether it's Nick's work, I don't know where Nick works, but, with, but you know what I mean? You guys, whether it be in your neighborhoods of Cherrybrook, whether it be in, uh, where do they live? Neutral Bay? Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Lee? Mossman. Whether it be in, I'm never going to go to Mossman. If, it, if I am, it's going to go to their house. But you know what I mean? Those, those are the windows. Those are the windows that the world will see who Jesus is. You're one of those windows. That's how Jesus sees. That's how your children see. That's how your family sees. That's how your workmates see. As opposed to always saying, come to church, it's for us as the church to go to them. Because that's what Jesus has called us to do. We're told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're told to go into all the world and make disciples. That's what we're told to do because we're the windows into the very heart of God. And this is what God does in Jesus Christ. He leaves his glory above to come to a sinful earth. And in this context here, what does he do? He goes to this specific workplace and hops into a fisherman's boat. Read with me in verses 2 and 3. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonged to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Here's a thought for you. Here's a thought for you. Jesus is using Peter's livelihood as one of the many ways of... of sorry as one of the many ways available to proclaim and teach the people about God. He's using Peter's livelihood as a platform to promote the kingdom of God. His livelihood, he just hops on, asks him, take it out a bit, and then he starts teaching. And you notice he does this a bit. God does this a bit. What does he do with Moses' staff? What's Moses' staff when he's out in the backside as a shepherd? A staff is his livelihood. It helps him with things. So what does God do? God takes that stuff and uses it for his glory. Balaam takes his mode of transportation. God takes Balaam's mode of transportation, a donkey, and speaks to him as to what he wants done. God takes those things and uses them as platforms to teach people about himself. And, and it's not just restricted. Look, what the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Psalm 19 verse 1. We have the God-breathed Word of God, a powerful tool that can discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. We have your life. We have your livelihood. We have your lifestyle as a disciple of Jesus Christ through whom his life can shine. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says this, that we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Through us, he makes his appeal to others about the kingdom of God, about the love of God, about the heart of God through us. That's amazing. We always talk about how we want to live for something bigger. 
We always talk about how we want a greater purpose in life. What greater purpose in the creator of the universe allowing us to be a part of his work to bring others to himself? That's amazing that he would take frail, foolish people like me and use me and the life of somebody else to be a blessing. And it's like, I just, I just think that's amazing. It's serious. And it's at this specific time when it was the availability of Peter's boat that was the tool through which God could have an impact. Not only on the crowds, but also upon Peter. Okay, imagine this. You finished working all night. You, you, you've gone fishing. You clean your, you, you've had a, it's been a shocking night. You haven't caught a thing. All you want to do is get home. It's now the morning. You want to get home. You want to clean up your stuff. You want to go home, have a rest, and just put that night behind you. While you're sitting there cleaning your nets, while you're fixing up your boat, this guy hops in and says, hey, can you put out a little bit? I want to do some work. I want to, I want to tell people. I would think, really? Really? Like, who, who are you sort of thing? So this guy, this guy rocks up hops in and then starts to talk to people about God. So I'm pretty sure that while Jesus is teaching, he's probably still about his work. He's still probably doing, but like with anything, he's listening. He's listening and he starts hearing these profound truths about who God is. He starts hearing these realities that he may not have considered. He was a religious Jew, yes, but he would have been hearing things. I thought, wow, okay, I've, I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard. And it was perhaps overhearing what Jesus was teaching that may have surprised him or, or shocked him so that when Jesus asks him this in verse 4, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a catch, I mean, this is a carpenter telling professional fishermen what to do. This is a guy who's just come around, this, this God man who starts yapping and says, hey man, you want to catch fish? Then this is what you need to do. That's like me telling Jono how to code. That, that's it. Like, honestly, if I hey, John, you do this, and I guarantee you, John will just brush me off and say, Joe, you know nothing. You know nothing. And I will agree. I will agree when it comes to that sort of stuff. I know nothing. But Peter, because of what Jesus had been teaching, because it played a, it might have been sort of ticking over in his mind, maybe it was an opportunity to sort of like test out what this guy has to say. This is Simon's answer. As reluctant as it may be, he says, Master, we have worked all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Now, I don't know much about fishing. Brad, if you're watching, I know you do. Well, I know you know nothing about catching things either, but, uh, get, but anyway, I can say, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Brad. I'm sorry, Brad, if you're watching that. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. But... <laughs> That was terrible. I can make fun of him now because he's not here. Like, <laughs> but, but here's the thing. What, from what I understand, when I, my, my dad used to go fishing, things like that. From what I understand about fishing, the best time to fish is not during the day. I don't know whether it's the fish see the boat or whatever it might be, but they, they, whatever it might be. The best time to go fishing is usually at night and usually early morning. And that's what Peter, James, and John, all those guys were doing. They were, they, were, they were fishing at night because that's what fishermen do. They were looking for a big catch and all that sort of stuff. So this guy tells Peter not only where to go, tells him what to do and how to do it. He says, go out into the deep water, which I'm pretty sure Peter and them would have went to already. Go into the deep water. All right? He went to do it. I want you to do it now in daylight. And he's probably thinking, you don't fish in the daytime. It's not what people do. Not if you want to be successful. 
And he said, put down the boats on the right. Put down your nets on the, on, the, on the right side of the boat, he says in one of the other Gospels. And then put the nets down. And so Peter goes, all right. I don't know if about you, but I probably would have thought, I'll show you. I'll show you how futile that is. And he throws it over. And what happens? They catch fish. Not just fish, but a heap of fish. They catch a heap of fish. He, he didn't want to, as far as Peter was concerned, it was an exercise in futility. But the major difference between when Peter went then and how Peter goes now is that Jesus is there. Is that Jesus is instructing him. Is that Jesus is present, which tells me a very important thing that I want all of us to consider. The scriptures are at their most powerful and at their most effective when Jesus is present with them. If you're just going to take a passage of a, of a Bible verse to, to prove your point and to knock over somebody's head with it, the Spirit of God's not involved in that. If the Scriptures are just there to sort of bash over that person's head so it makes you feel better about yourself, Jesus isn't present with that. It's when Jesus, who by his Spirit wrote this word, it's when he is present with them that it's at the most effective. It's like, it's like when Moses, in the presence of God, cried out in Exodus 33. He says this, If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Verse, 30, uh, verse 14, the Lord replied, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. If your presence isn't going to go with me, I don't want to go. Uh, at camp, Henry Earl said something. He, he said something which I thought was really profound. He goes, isn't, isn't that all of our biggest worry? Isn't that our biggest worry that Jesus won't show up? Isn't that our biggest worry? That if we go out and try something, Jesus isn't there? And it is. That's exactly right. At the end of verse 16 of chapter 33, he says, How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? And that's why it's so important, even when we dive into the scriptures for our quiet times, our devotionals, that Jesus is present. That is him revealing himself to know us. I, I, know, I know this. I know that the scriptures aren't as effective when Jesus isn't present because the impact of God's word is only unlocked when his spirit is present. It's only God's spirit that can unlock the minds and hearts of people. Not what I say. It's only God's spirit that can transform a person's heart. It's only God's spirit that can impact it. And I'm just the vessel through which God can use to communicate to you. It's got nothing to do with me. It's got nothing. To, it's, it's all of him and what he does with weak vessels. And, it, and it's God that gives one access to abundance. It is God that gives one access that exceeds our expectations. Because that's what you read in verse 6 and 7 when he says, when they had done so. So when Jesus was present and they listened to what he said, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So abundant was the blessing of God that it went beyond their human capacity to contain it. It just went more. They signaled their partners to the other boat to come and help them. They came and they filled both boats. These are fisher boats. Fisher boats. These are fishing boats. My grandma's terrible today. And they came and filled both boats, okay? And they both began to sink. 
This is the God who does things more than what we could ask or even imagine. Ephesians 3, 20 to 23, you know? Now unto him who is able to do exceed abundantly above all that we ask or imagine, according to the power that works in us. That is him being present. To him be glory in the church. But now even to the end of the age. The God who does more than we ask or imagine, who can take things that are so little or, or, and do so much. You see that in John 6 when he feeds the 5,000. Who can take the foolish things and the weak things and the lowly things and the despised things and he can nullify the things that are for his glory. That says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 31. And it's all because we can't, it's so we can't, should I say, boast in, its pre- boast in his presence. It's why we can't take credit for any of our standing before him because nothing in me was of any use for me to rid myself of my sin. Nothing in me could make myself right with God. I had to rely on him for that. And when faced with the greatness of who Jesus is in this event, Peter couldn't help but respond. He had, to, he had to get down on his knees. He was humbled to such an extent. And he says, go, go away from me. Go away from me. I am a sinful man. But we read how Jesus came to save sinners. To seek and save the lost. That's that whole situation. If, if, if we could but grasp just, just a glimpse, just a, a sliver of, of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and, and the giving of his son, then we too would be, be humbled that the fact that he would accept me with all my weaknesses, with all my failings, with all my selfishness. And all of this, all of this, when it comes to the disciples' call, now please bear in mind this, that when I'm talking about the disciples' call, um, especially this situation, I'm not, I'm not talking about salvation. See, salvation, salvation, that, that didn't cost us anything in the sense we could do nothing to save ourselves. That's all of Jesus Christ. That's all of God. That's it. The calling to service is a thing that costs. And that's why all of this is to communicate the truth of the disciples' call, that the disciples' call costs Last year, we looked at how the disciple call means to follow. It means, it means scrutiny. It means challenge. And it also means cost. The disciples call cost. Read with me in verse 10 and 11. So James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Now, they pulled up their boats. Sorry, they pulled their boats up on shore. They left everything and followed him. Now, the cost, firstly, it's this. It cost them their earthly purpose. They had been fishing all night. What's their earthly purpose? Good home, plenty, a, a nice stable wage, a secure job. That's all good. They had all of that and more in one day fishing with Jesus. Two boats. Now, I, I don't know, many years ago, we were on a camp. I can't remember where the camp was. And uh, they had these three-man canoes, just three-man canoes. And I think a lot of the, one of the challenges was how many people can you get in a canoe without it sinking? And I think we got to double figures. Uh, I wasn't in there because, yeah, that, that would have been not even, not even five. But 
I think we got maybe about 12 or 13 people in one boat, and it was just, it was just at the edge. You thought, okay, that, that's good, that's good. Um, depending on the size of people, you can get more in or, or less, whatever, whoever the size of people. But, but what I'm saying is this, it takes a lot to sink a boat, even if it's a small canoe. These are fishermen's boats. These are quite big. There are so much fish that these boats were sinking. Do you realize how many fish there has to be for a boat to sink? Not only that, for two boats to sink. Do you imagine how much money that they would have available to them? To how much support? Man, they wouldn't have to fish for another few weeks, maybe even a month or so because of what they had got there, what they could sell off there, what they could drain, what they could barter. It would have been absolutely amazing. But for them, their concern was no longer their great pull and their great wage, what they earned that day. That was not their concern. Their earthly purpose went from, wow, we've got enough money for the rent. We've got enough money for this. We've got enough money for that. Oh, this is absolute. That was not their concern. What was their concern? I'm going to leave this, and I'm going to follow Jesus. It cost them their earthly purpose. Can you imagine Peter going home to his wife? How was the catch? Oh, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing, babe. We caught, like, the boats were so full they were sinking we got a whole stack of fish there it was absolutely amazing oh great when are you going out next oh i'm not i'm following a carpenter from nazareth i'm going to follow jesus mrs peter probably wouldn't have been happy but i know well history doesn't tell us but all i know is this that they considered their earthly purpose to be responding to the messiah rather than for themselves their encounter with Jesus forced them to reconsider what they were living for. Hard workers only living for themselves to survive. Fishermen they were, but Jesus proposed to them that they would now become a fisher of men. Or as the New King James says, to be made fishers of men, in Matthew 4, 4, 19, as they followed him. Secondly, it cost them a great wage, which I already mentioned. Um, and, 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 and lastly, See, these two fishing boats, where they left everything for that, they had been convinced of the lordship. They'd been convinced of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we have been recipients of his grace by trusting in him and the sacrifice he made on the cross for us. We've been trusting in him, the resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, and that by faith, he who trusts in him can be connected with God, can have forgiveness of sin, can be born again of his spirit and welcomed into his family. Is it any wonder then that when he calls me to follow him, that I am no longer following others? It's not like the social media thing. It's like you, you follow this person, this person, this person, this person, this person. No, 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 no. When it comes to following Jesus, it was either stay with the fish and say, see you later, or it was follow Jesus and leave the fish behind. Is it no wonder then that when he says to follow him, it means no longer following others? Doesn't it no, doesn't it make, is it no wonder then that if I move toward him, that I'm moving away from other things? Is it no wonder then that when I'm taking up his cross, I am laying down my own selfish needs? Doesn't that make sense? That if I'm moving towards one, I'm moving away from the other. That if I'm picking one up, I've got to lay something down. 
That's what the disciples' call means. For Peter and his partners, they had discovered the pearl of great price. And they gave away all that they had in order to attain the greatest treasure in existence. If you read in uh, Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, about there's a story of a man, a, a pearl merchant, or the man who finds a hidden treasure, that's right, a hidden treasure in a field. And he's like, wow. And he sells everything that he has to purchase that field and have that one treasure. That's what it cost him. Or, the, or, or a pearl merchant who found this one pearl that was of such great price, he was willing to sell everything he had to attain and to claim that one great pearl. That's the picture that's given to us in this disciple's call. That was the picture given for Peter and James and John, all those guys, in leaving one to attain the other. So it is with us. It comes down to us as his disciples to seriously weigh up what we have or what we look for in this world in comparison to what we've been given and what we possess in Jesus Christ. That's, 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 it. that's all it comes down to. Like in this world, we're told this, John 10.10, 10, what does the thief do in this world? The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. What does Jesus do? He says, I've come to you have life and have it abundantly. What, what does the world say? Uh, the world says, in this world you will have trouble. John 16.33. What does Jesus say? I have told you this thing, so in me you might have peace. In the world we find sin and death. What do we find in Jesus? Life and vitality. I mean, seriously. If we're going to look at things like that, how, you, how are you going to weigh that up? He gives sustenance whereby we will never be in need. He is the bread of life in whom we will never hunger and whom we will never have thirst. He is, he is the one whereby we, can, we never need to fear death because he is the resurrection and the life. He has given us direction whereby we'll never get lost because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the connection where we experience growth because he is the true vine. And he is the security whereby we'll never be let go. In John 20, we will never, we can never be plucked from his hand. So while the cost is great as a follower of Jesus, it pales in comparison to what we've been given in Jesus. Maybe we as Christians need to spend a bit of time searching the scriptures to see what we actually have in our hands as a child of the Most High God. Maybe we need to spend a bit of time sitting there looking at, wow, Lord, you, you've done this for me. You died for me so I could have life. Oh, you've given me eternal life. Oh, you've given me my family. You've, you've given me your spirit. You've given me your word. You've given me your promises. You have given me so much. Maybe if we spend some time looking at that, we can realize I have all I need in the person of Jesus. Because honestly, any cost I pay or anything that I give up or profess to sacrifice is worth the price to know God intimately as our Father. It's worth being known by him through Jesus as his child too. Um, so for those of you who don't know, I'm pretty sure I told everybody. So I'm, I'm Psalm 1. I'm Psalm 1. And, and I remember as a youngster, I didn't want to be Psalm 1. And I've told Alan this. Uh, when I was a youngster, I wanted my name to be Alan. And, and, and that I was sort of pale skin. You know, that, that's what I want. You know? I, 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 I actually, I, I did a bit of a thing. I know why. Do you guys remember Alan? 
Does anyone remember the movie, the, Thund- the, the TV show, The Thunderbirds? Yeah, does anyone remember the name? So the, the, the pilot of Thunderbird 3, which was the space one, was Alan. Number four was Gordon. Virgil was number two. Scott was number one. Um, I can't remember number five. Yeah, sorry, but anyway. You can Google that if you want. But I always want to be Alan. As I got older, as I got older, as I grew more, I came to appreciate the, the, the richness of my heritage, the richness of my culture, the richness of my family, the richness of, of my traditions, the richness of, of all those things. And now I was like, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really thankful that I, I didn't become white and call myself Alan. Okay? But it was, it was, it was, maybe, that, maybe we need some of that growth in our own spiritual lives. Maybe we need some of that growth in our, as opposed to wanting to be approved by the world, wanting to be recognized by the world, want to sort of attain those worldly values and worldly goals, that we come to spend time in, in, in the Word and, and see this is who God has made you in Jesus Christ. That in Him you lack nothing. That in the call that He's given you, He's given a purpose that lasts to eternity. That in the life that He's given you through His death is a life where He can look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. See, that's our challenge. I want us. This is the disciples' call. Yes, it costs but it's worth the price. C.T. Studd, who used to be the former English cricket captain, um, C.T. Studd, I'll tell you another story about it later, but C.T. Studd says this, and I'll close with this. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. I'm going to read one more time. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. May we be challenged to make that sacrifice, to respond to his call, and to pay the cost. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the example of of Simon Peter. I thank you so much for the call that you've placed not only on his life, but on ours, that you've called us to follow you that you're using our lives as platforms through which you can talk and proclaim your kingdom. Thank you that we are the windows that go out to the world so people see your heart and and, and your love and and the wonderful life-transforming message that is the gospel. I pray that we would weigh things up. I pray that we'll be willing to pay the cost of, of knowing you intimately, closely. You've invited us to follow, and and while we follow, be changed by you. I I pray, Lord, that we will come to appreciate the sheer magnitude of all that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Life, purpose, hope, security, contentment, direction. Father, I thank you so much for all these things and more. Please stir our hearts to do more than just exist. Please stir our hearts to be children that are doers of your word and not hearers only. Father, we need you to do this. Please do so for your glory and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.